In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. The title of this sermon is, What's Wrong with the World? So it should be a short one. And uh, it's actually on the epistle today, the epistle from Galatians. Is there anything on which every worldview, religion, and philosophy agrees? This seems an unlikely possibility. There are, after all, worldviews that teach that there is one God, that there are many gods, or that there are no gods. Some worldviews teach that man is an animal. Some teach that he is a god. Some teach that the world around us is all there is. Some that even this world isn't anything, that life is an illusion. Some religions teach the obligation of holy war, others of holy pacifism. Some religions honor marriage, others forbid it, and some allow it but disdain it. So can anything be found on which they are all in agreement? Believe it or not, yes. The thing that all the worldviews I have studied are in agreement on is that mankind is messed up. (laughs) There is something askew in us. We are not what we might be. Now granted, different worldviews have different answers about what exactly it is that is askew in mankind. Some consider the problem of mankind to be one of delusion or ignorance, one that can in principle be corrected by a right understanding. Other philosophers have taught that mankind has an inborn tendency towards selfishness, but one that can be managed by mutual negotiation and agreement. Still others teach that mankind is naturally good, but has been corrupted by society. Even the religions that teach that man is a god say that the problem with man is that he doesn't realize that he is a god, which makes us some odd kind of god, I suppose. Even philosophies that teach that we are naturally good, like modern secular humanism, say the problem with man is that he has allowed himself to be deluded by religion. Since the vast majority of the world still holds to some sort of religious beliefs, it seems that naturally good man goes astray very often. But why is it that everyone agrees on this? Well, the matter is too plain to be avoided. As G.K. Chesterton once said, original sin is the only Christian doctrine that can be proved through experience, and it receives ample proof in every day's newspaper. It is all too clear that something is amiss with us. Let us not pass over too quickly the surprising truth of this. To paraphrase Chesterton again, nobody has ever gazed upon the crocodile and said, my, my, crocodiles really could be crocodiles if only someone would take them in hand and show them how. We have a sense that a crocodile more or less is what it is, but we find irresistible the notion that human beings really could make something of themselves if they weren't constantly going astray with war and lust and self-delusion. Imagine living in a world where doors were made without locks because there was no reason to fear keeping anyone out. Imagine a world in which nobody went hungry or homeless because everyone was provided for out of the abundance of their fellows. Imagine a world in which dropping a bomb on someone was was as unthinkable as casual murder. Something inside us says that is precisely the way the world ought to be, even as we know for a fact that it isn't. So why isn't the world this way? 
This is the crucial question we must get right. For one of the most fundamental facts in the universe, we must get our answer right here or nowhere. Understanding this problem is one fundamental crossroads where all Christian thinking and all unchristian thinking part ways. St. Paul has an answer to this question for us. The problem with us is the flesh and its works, and the only solution is the spirit. What is the flesh? It is simply the nature we have inherited from our father Adam, by which we are inclined towards the evil deeds that St. Paul mentions, and utterly powerless to turn towards God by our own strength. Our problem is not, then, mere ignorance. We are entirely capable of knowing what the right thing to do is, and nevertheless yielding to the flesh. In fact, the right thing to do is rarely so obscure as to escape us entirely. On this, many philosophies go astray, thinking mere education will liberate man from his predicament. Now, I myself am an educator. I believe a good education is a great advantage in life. However, it is not the solution to all mankind's problems. Education will only solve the problems rooted in ignorance. Many problems are indeed caused by ignorance, but not the ones most fundamental to our nature. Which of us knows how to lie? Any exceptions here? Which of us had to be taught it? Which of us had to be taken aside and explained how it works to say one thing, even when an entirely different thing is true? For all I know, some people are taught lying in this way, but I will tell you nobody needs to learn it that way. Every one of us could figure it out for himself just fine. <laughs> Similarly for bullying, contempt, and every other work of the flesh. They don't come from a bad environment twisting our angelic natures. They come from our sinful hearts. Nor is this just a matter of us occasionally making bad decisions. If it were a matter of just choosing, we would at least occasionally find people who never did lie, never did lash out at others. Ice cream is a choice. Some people like one flavor, some people like another. Getting married is a choice. Some do, some don't. If evil were a choice in this sense, some people wouldn't choose it. That doesn't happen. Consequently, there must be something evil in our nature. Now, there is also a sense in which evil is a choice. We are responsible for the evil that we do. Nobody makes us do it. It is a free choice in that sense. We are always free to do what we want. It's just that what we want is evil. And in the words of Article 10 of the 39 Articles, we lack any power in ourselves to turn ourselves by our own natural strength towards God. God himself must provide the means whereby we can turn away from sin and evil and turn towards God. And that God-given means is the Spirit, the blessed person of the Trinity, whose temple we are. Make no mistake, anyone who tries to tell you that something other than the flesh and its works are at the heart of humanity's problems, or that anything but the Spirit and his fruits are the solution to that problem, then he is trying to sell you a different gospel. But we have it on the Apostles' authority that there is no other gospel than the gospel, and that if even an angel from heaven should try to preach a different gospel, that message must be rejected, and that anyone who preaches a different gospel is accursed. In Pilgrim's Progress, the Christian pilgrim, who is trying to rid himself of the burden of his sin, encounters a fellow named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. 
Mr. Worldly Wise Man advises Christian to disregard the hard and dangerous road of the cross. Instead, let him meet his friends, Mr. Legality and Mr. Civility, and they will teach him how to manage his burden without the work of the cross. Many think that there must be an easier solution to mankind's problems than the cross and following Jesus as Lord. Maybe if we just had better laws and taught people how to behave, all our problems would resolve themselves. Generally, the liberals in our country think we just need to reform the laws, and the conservatives think we just need to purify our manners, and everything will be fine. Now, just laws and pure manners are very valuable to a nation, no doubt. But the danger is that either of these options can become exalted to the point of trying to substitute for the gospel. This liberal gospel and this conservative gospel are both dead wrong. They are both attempts to save mankind through the works of the law. One, the civil law, and the other, the moral law. But law can't save mankind. If it could, God's law would have done it, but it can't. The only answer to our problems is the fruit of the Spirit, which we can only access through the work of our Lord Jesus. Now, it would be nice if our life as Christians meant a total end to the flesh. But notice that St. Paul doesn't say that. The flesh and the Spirit are contrary to one another. With what result? You can't do the things you want to. In other words, even when you are converted, when the Spirit has begun to work in your life, and you have formed a genuine desire to serve God through the works of the Spirit, the flesh is still there. Our whole Christian life on this earth will be a battle against the flesh. If you think your problems with the flesh are over, watch out. There have been individuals in the church, Wesley among, him, among them, who have taught the possibility of total sanctification. The idea that we can, at some point in our maturity as believers in this life, totally root up sin from our life so that we sin no longer. But we shouldn't expect such a thing. As long as we are in this life, we must say with St. John that if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all iniquity. What are we to make of the continued presence of sin in our lives? Should we worry that at some point we're really going to blow it, commit some really big sin so that God will say, sorry, you're out. No. St. Paul says we are not under law. That's not how it works. Does God chastise us for our sins? You bet. He knows how to do it, too. But he chastises us as a father chastises his children to discipline us and to get us to turn away from the evil we do, not to punish us for the sake of punishment or reject us. There's a notion in Roman Catholic theology that God's salvation for us is only as good as our last sin. You commit a really big sin, one of the mortal ones, and God at that moment goes from wanting to save you to wanting to condemn you, so that if you died at that moment, you would go to hell. Then when you go to confession, you fix that, and now God wants to save you again. No, that's not how it works. Sin does indeed provoke God's stern and fatherly, fatherly discipline, and serious episodes of sin can obscure our own awareness and assurance that we are saved. It is a terrible state to be in. But the Bible teaches, and Article 17 drives this point home, that we were chosen and predestinated to salvation by God from before the foundation of the world. God doesn't change his mind about you. He doesn't will sometimes to condemn you and sometimes to save you. By believing and being adopted as his child, 
which itself was not really your work, but the work of the Spirit in your heart, you can be well assured that he will never cast you out. It's not all riding on you. That's vanity. St. Paul goes on to list some of these works of the flesh. Matthew Henry suggests we consider these under a few different categories. First are offenses against the seventh commandment, such as adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness. Then there are sins against the first and second commandments, such as idolatry and witchcraft. Then there are sins against our neighbors, such as hatred, variance, emulations, murders, and so on. Lastly, there are sins against ourselves, such as drunkenness and revelings. Under the seventh commandment, we have adultery and fornication. Adultery refers to unclean thoughts, words, or actions involving at least one person who is married. Fornication is the same thing when neither person is married. Our culture still retains a healthy fear of adultery, though there is an increasing tendency to see the evil of it only in the deception of the spouse, not in the act itself. It doesn't matter, however, whether the spouse is deceived or not. In fact, it is a weirder and grosser sin when the spouse is a willing accomplice. When two people marry, they pledge total fidelity to one another before God. If a husband and wife connive together to violate that sacred trust, it only means we have two oathbreakers instead of one. That's not an improvement. While our culture retains some horror of adultery, it doesn't consider fornication a sin at all, probably for the same reason, that it can no longer see the evil in the uncleanness itself, but only in an intentional deception of a loved one. But St. Paul says the works of the flesh are manifest. They are obvious. This is not hidden or special knowledge. This is not just for the advanced, the extra credit students. This stuff is the basics. If we can't see it, it's our problem. This is not a sin to wink at or extenuate. This is most certainly a sin that can and will condemn our souls. They who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, the apostle says. Along the same vein, Paul mentions uncleanness, which in this context probably refers to offenses against the seventh commandment that are committed in a solitary way or in the mind, or which are committed contrary to nature. Lastly is lasciviousness, which refers to everything that does not deal in these sins directly, but which serves to provoke them or the thought of them. For examples, see modern advertising or most of what's on Netflix. If you can imagine giving someone a beautiful, a beautiful painting and then visiting their home only to find that they've been using it as a placemat at the table and that the gorgeous brush strokes are now covered in brown coffee rings, smears of condiment, and unidentifiable greasy stains, you can imagine how grievous these sins are before God. He gave us marriage and married life to be a beautiful picture of Christ's love for the church. And our sin takes that image and defaces it for our own selfish and short-sighted purposes. Of all the works of the flesh St. Paul mentions, the ones which at first glance seem most remote from our experience are the violations of the first and second commandments, idolatry and witchcraft. Offenses against the seventh commandment make us reach up to loosen our collars, but we breathe a sigh of relief when we get to these. Surely, we think, at least we haven't set up any heathen idols or met a coven by the full moon to consort with diabolical forces. But should we be so sure that these sins don't apply to us? The great theologian Calvin said of the heart of man that it was a factory of idols, churning them out all the time. We worship idols not only when we turn away from the true and living God, 
to other so-called deities, but when we try to refashion God according to our own liking. There are many today who will reject the teaching of the church on some controversial issue with this excuse, that it seems to them inconsistent with their view of who God is. Really? And who put us in charge of deciding what God is like? Mustn't we learn from God himself what he is like? In every other branch of knowledge, we study something less than ourselves, animal, vegetable, or mineral. In the study of God, we must humble ourselves before something far greater than ourselves and learn wisdom from him. The truth is that for all such people may claim to worship God, they in fact worship an idol of their own hearts to which they give the same name. As St. Augustine said, if you pick and choose what parts of the gospel to believe and not to believe, you don't believe in the gospel at all, but in yourself. You've made an idol of yourself. Well, you say, at least witchcraft is still out. Let's look a little closer. The Greek word used here has somewhat different associations from our English word. Witchcraft suggests to us pointy hats, black cats, broomsticks, and warts. But the Greek word is actually more closely related to our word pharmacy and is associated with the preparation and consumption of drugs, potions, and the like. Such preparations were closely associated with magical and occult knowledge in the ancient world. There's a scene in Homer's Odyssey where Helen of Troy drugs everyone's wine. The word used for drug is the same root as the word here for witchcraft to make them forget about the horrors of war. Helen has supposedly learned of this preparation from Egyptian magicians, and its potency is such that Homer says, even if your son had died in battle that very day, it would make you forget all your troubles. Though the exact drug mentioned is probably a fictional creation, it seems to resemble the properties of opium, which has been used since long before the time of Homer. The term translated as witchcraft is also closely associated with the provision of medically induced abortions, in both Christian and pagan texts of the time. We think of abortion and drug abuse as modern problems, but they were well known in the ancient world, and there really is nothing new under the sun. Broadly speaking, the witchcraft Paul refers to here can be characterized as ingesting physical substance to use their hidden properties in a way contrary to our nature. Especially in light of his later condemnation of drunkenness, we can certainly say Paul is condemning, seeking in mind-altering substances, the comfort that should be sought in God alone. Of course, science has revealed many beneficial properties to many medicines, but if we are using them to dull our mind to an indifferent stupor or to disrupt the natural processes of life, we are committing this sin. St. Paul also gives us a long list of sins that all tend towards the harm of others, culminating in murder. The important lesson to take away here is that murder is not something that comes like a bolt from the blue. It is the fully mature fruit of other sins whose harm we have a tendency to underestimate. How many murders are the fruit of a seed that was planted in envy in being sorrowful at the success of others? How many have come from a seemingly insignificant conflict that might have been checked in time but wasn't? Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. We must not nourish the seeds of thoughts and feelings that put us into opposition with others. We must nip our small sins in the bud while they are still small. To pull weeds, your own two hands are enough. The tools required for removing a tree, stump and all, are very different. But in another sense, the only difference between removing an oak sapling and an oak is the time you give it to grow.
Don't give your sins time to grow and bear their bitter fruit. Well, St. Paul has given us a vivid picture of the human problem. Perhaps we have failed in some of these areas. Perhaps we continue to struggle with them. Well, so do I. I have grieved my good God with many works of the flesh. The burden of these failings is intolerable. Are we, to, are we to despair of our salvation? Are we among those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, as Paul so fearfully describes? Not if we repent. When Paul says that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, he means those who do them unrepentantly, those who do them habitually, regularly, as a feature of their lifestyle. We must not give sin that kind of hold in our lives. We must be continually turning away from our sins and towards God. No matter how many times we fall, we must get up again. How can we combat these works of the flesh? We must become Pentecostals. Pentecostals? Even us Anglicans? Yes, even we Anglicans must become Pentecostals. We must be speaking in tongues and working miraculous healings and that sort of thing? No, not necessarily. Not unless that's something God specifically calls us to do. But what I mean is that we must give attention to the miraculous fruit the Holy Spirit bears in our lives. Miracles? Love and joy are miracles? Peace and patience are miracles? They most certainly are. What's a miracle? Isn't it any time we see something working contrary to its typical nature? Waters don't divide to let people through. That's a miracle. Blind eyes don't suddenly start seeing. That's a miracle. Similarly, the works of our sinful nature are what St. Paul has already described. That is fallen human nature working along its usual course. But Paul says the fruits of the Spirit are contrary to these. They are then, each of them, miracles. And he who loves, he who has faith, he who is meek, is exercising a miraculous ministry, no less than if he went about raising the dead. Indeed, these fruits can only occur in our lives because we already have been raised from the death of our trespasses into new life in Jesus Christ. The works of the flesh are works indeed. They are effort and weariness and leave our spirits tired and empty. But notice Paul does not oppose the works of the flesh with works of the spirit. The flesh works. The spirit bears fruits. These are not things for which we grit our teeth and flex our spiritual muscles and accomplish with a great deal of groaning and sweat. They are a natural growth of God working in our lives. We must pray for the provision of the Spirit, who alone can bring this fruit in our lives to maturity. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Take not your Holy Spirit from us. Amen. 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 All things come of thee, O Lord.